Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Gay Shannon Burnett, co-founder of the Azubuki African American Council for the Arts in Davenport, and with Jonathan Burnett, an independent filmmaker and executive director of Azubuki, who is originally from Rock Island, but now works in Los Angeles. Welcome, Gay and Jonathan. Thank you for having us, Carolyn. Thank you for having us. Of course. Now, this has been a wild year so far between the COVID-19 pandemic with its health and economic consequences to the social and political upheavals we're seeing now. And with the urgency of the Black Lives Matter movement, this is a unique and really important moment to examine the impact of racial inequity in the arts. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can start by having you describe how you've been feeling these past few months. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, I think um, as far as how I've been feeling the past couple months, I've, I've been feeling a lot of ways, um, some new feelings and then also uh, some feelings that I've that I felt not only uh, recently, but also in, in 2016 and, and, and many years before that. Um, uh, starting with the feelings that I felt before, um, uh, angry um, and, uh, you know, fearful. Um, those are feelings that are, that's nothing new to me, um, having grown up um, a black, young black man in, in America. And um, I think some new feelings, however, that, um, that came about um, recently uh, have been determination. And, um, and then also, I guess you could say, uh, a bit more hope. Um, I see things changing right before my eyes in, in every industry. And, um, and I see companies and individuals really stepping forward and, um, and doing things that will make actual change. Um, and not just posting things, not just, you know, doing a video saying how they support, but actually making uh, infrastructural and systemic change within their own companies. Um, so I think those are things that I've been feeling. And, and sometimes I do feel a bit um, apathetic. Um, but I think this time it, it's different. It's different for me, yeah. And as far as the way I'm feeling, I mean, mine is kind of like a mixture of feelings because I have references to the past that Jonathan has only read about <laughs> since I was alive. Uh, I was young during uh, the civil rights movement of 1965. I was just maybe about 12, but I was old enough to remember and to understand the impact it had on black people, on my parents, on my relatives, and the change that we actually thought would be permanent. And that was one of the things when I got millions of phone calls, not really millions, I, I mean, that's a figure of speech, but I got a lot of phone calls asking me, you know, well, what do you think I can do? What I can do? Because, you know, 
my comments were basically whatever changes that you try to implement, they need to be real change, not just talking about it now, not just having diversity training, not just having sensitivity training. People need to look at what are the permanent changes that we can make to attack systemic racism, to attack the br brutality uh, against black and brown you know, bodies and people. That those are some of the things that I've been feeling um, and some of the things that I would like to, to see happen where we have real change and that we undo some of that systemic racism that has really been prevalent for far too long. Yeah, there, I, I do feel that there's a higher level of consciousness now and, and we're having a public reckoning and, and hopefully, um, hopefully our, minds and our philosophies and our actions will change because the the legislation that was passed in the 60s there was so much hope that it would that it would make a difference um but in reality those biases and prejudices and and barriers to um to promotion and to equity still still remained um so um so i'm i too am hopeful that this that this change that this time is a little bit different um I, I do want to mention that um, that we are not together. That this is a three-way remote conversation as the COVID pandemic still hasn't abated, and you know the case numbers actually are rising. Where are both of you now physically? I am actually. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I'm physically in the Quad Cities in Rock Island, Illinois. So that's where I am. <laughs> And uh, physically, I am in Los Angeles, uh, California. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan, you're originally from the Quad Cities, from Rock Island. Um, and you mentioned you were a lot younger. How, how old are you? Uh, 32. I'm 32 mm -hmm. years old. Mm -hmm. So I, I love the fact that the three of us are having this conversation um, because there is the, the difference in age. Um, and there's a, a, a difference in skin color and I'm white and, and, um, and I think that it is really important that we have these conversations amongst each other rather than, than separate, um, you know, racial inequity has been so well documented and inequity in the arts, um, certainly, which is what we're talking about today. Um, is is so prevalent from film to, to theater to literature the visual arts you name it and there's I imagine there's there's such a detrimental aspect to not seeing people who look like you presented on screen or in books or in an art gallery it's an insidious thing do do you feel that now or have you experienced that sensation in your past of not of recognizing that people who are being portrayed in art don't look like you Well, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I do have, you know, quite a bit of experience with that, unfortunately. Um, I know that that was part of what gave birth to the Harlem Renaissance. So Black art and artists and writers and uh, actors and, and, you know, screenplay, um, you know, film people could actually get content that resembled them and also that celebrated the black experience and 
those things are real important. It's very important for um, for children, the literature, as far as that's concerned. And I hope Rock Island School doesn't get mad at me, but it's a public conversation. They were trying to take Black Lit off of the curriculum at Rock Island High School. And it's one of the things that, no, you don't take it out. You need to incorporate more diverse literature and not just say, oh, well, they get it in regular, you know, um, English class, which is, it's diluted, it's inconsistent, it doesn't highlight, you know, the accomplishments of Black writers. And if anything, they need to be incorporating more. So little things from Blacks representing uh, what they've done as far as history is concerned is really kind of like a side conversation when you talk about, you know, education in American schools, in museums. It's always a special type of show. They're not, uh, black artists aren't really considered, maybe now a lot more it's opened up, but before you weren't considered to be in collections of museums. So that means they weren't buying your artwork. And just the images that are portrayed all the time, you know, on television and commercials and in film, black people weren't included uh, and when we were included, there was a, a, a long period of time where it was stereotypes and negative images and, and things that you just really couldn't look up to. And that's okay if you had counterbalance. You know, for every negative image that you had about Black people, you needed to have good positive ones. So the counterbalance for things like that didn't exist either. And just from uh, some projects that I've been working on, when... Artists are looked to um, to do commissions or for sculptures and murals, even in our town. We never consider African-American artists. And when it's brought up, it's like, well, where can we find them? And it's like, they're not really hiding. But, <laughs> but it, it's one of those things, yeah, maybe you have to reach out a lot more. So it's those type of things that in art, um, especially in, in art, where people are being commissioned and actually paid for something, Blacks are oftentimes excluded or overlooked. So that's pretty much been my experience. And like I said, it hasn't gotten that much better considering the long, the time from the Harlem Renaissance to now, you know, it's been a while. It should really be a lot more diverse as far as all museums, all art galleries and, and things like that. Yeah, as far as like my feelings with um, with um, experiencing like a, a lack of um, of representation and not being able to see myself, like um, I feel like uh, growing up there was probably more representation than what my mother or what my father have seen in their times. But still, um, I think what my mom touched upon is um, negative stereotypes or just archetypes, tropes, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they they're more they were more prevalent in when I was growing up and watching um, different types of film television art even even listening to uh, to radio just like overall content and the thing is is that um, uh, when when I saw those type of tropes or those stereotypes I feel like it made it, it, it like at a young age it made me believe that I had to be that way. Um, 
I mean, you know, for sure, like, you know, my parents, they, <laughs> you know, they raised me, they raised me not to be that way. They, they showed me what being black is really about. And they made me understand from a very young age that being black is, is a spectrum. We are, we are different people across the board. Um, we're not going to be the same and that's what makes us unique. And then in fact, in fact, that's what makes this country unique. You know, this country claims it to be a melting pot, you know? Um, and so why not, if we're such a melting pot, then why not have black lit be a part of the, the regular, like, you know, the, what they call regular, um, literature curriculum. Um, why not have different writers from all ethnicities be a part of that? American curriculum, especially if they wrote and made their uh, made their standing within this country. Um, another thing that that uh, that happens with like, you know, uh, those stereotypes and those representations is when you have these black writers or you have black screenwriters or black filmmakers, they're often pigeonholed into creating only black content where we have the ability to tell all types of stories. We have we know our own stories. We can tell our own stories best, and sometimes we have to fight to even do that. But then, when we have an opportunity to tell someone else's story, it's almost like we're stopped dead in our tracks. There's also this, you know, this power within the institutional hierarchies that we have. the The museum um, directors, the curators, are more apt to be white. Um, it, it just kind of goes on and on. Galleries are more often owned by not just white people, but white men. Uh, and there's the barriers in education that you'd mentioned. I, uh, when you had talked about the African American literature class potentially being canceled at Rock Island, I was actually an English major in college and I never had a course in African American literature, which is just shocking to look back on. It was an incomplete education. Yes, yes. And I agree with you. And I, I think it's it's incomplete because I think we have made significant contributions that would be valuable to anyone living in the United States or abroad. But the other thing, it's really more devastating for for young black children never to have known that not only do we read, we write. And, you know, we can do uh, more than just perform other people's writings. Uh, a lot of times when I, I do, um, like, poetry classes or, or things like that or workshops, I'm always surprised that a lot of the young Black kids don't really know who James Baldwin is. They don't really know much about anybody else. Uh, Maya Angelou, I think most people will know her. Some of the young kids still don't know her. And they've never heard of Nikki Giovanni or, you know, or Richard Ralph Ryder. Ellison. Yeah, well, no, they don't they never go back that far. Yeah. <laughs> As far as that's concerned, so it, it's 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 incomplete education for them as well because they don't understand that they have a rich heritage, you know, to draw from. That you know the the thoughts, especially James Rowan, he's one of my you know very very favorite uh, writers, and Mine some too. of the things yours too, uh, yeah. <laughs> and some of the things that he writes about are still, you know, things that we're going through that are relevant now. And he's been gone for years, but it's just the, the whole thing about, 
I don't know. It's more like a miseducation of, of black children. And they need to have a better education, a better understanding of their contributions, and especially through art. I was looking at a YouTube video. Yes, I go on YouTube. <laughs> but it was actually very good. And they tied it to a TED Talk. And they called it Dance as Protest. And it was just fabulous. But African Americans, like other cultures, have always used the arts to um, to give voice to their protest as well. And from you know just pictures and creation, sculpture, and just you know dance, acting, we have to use the arts as protest because there's no way for us to divide what happens to us in this country, what has been happening to us in this country, if not you know, filtering it through our artistic abilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, art is a, is a really a powerful means of, of making social or political statements. And, mm-hmm. and the easiest part of the problem, which is what where we are now, is just identifying it and finally waking up from our long slumber, if you will, and, and naming it. But the real challenge is to, is to modify our behavioral patterns, I'm I'm wondering how people at the top, you know, the museum directors, the executives in the film and publishing industries, how they will roll up their sleeves and get to work and how the rest of us will respond. Because, you know, really right now, protest is one of the important tools that we have and also publishing data and making sure people understand how far the inequity goes. I feel that also not only like, yeah, protest. I, I went to one of the protests here in Los Angeles um, on Fairfax and third. And, and actually that protest ended up on, on the news uh, where there was a, where there was a, 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 you know, basically the police came ready, uh, suited up for riots and in their riot gear. And, and the protesters were um, holding a chain and other protesters were trying to keep the protesters away from the police and, and then it all went out of control from there. But what I've been seeing um, a lot, mostly on social media, is um, is content, um, especially whether it's like a, a podcast or a radio show, like we're doing right now, or or um, you know little tidbits of information. Because I think we we've come into a culture where being able to give that data through content, uh, through visual content, um, is is very important and getting it on a platform out to the masses. And actually that's what we at Azubuke are are trying to do right now. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Azubuke because um, the two of you and Gay, you in particular, you've been practicing for many years, the type of work that the rest of us need to do in the arts. What does Azubuke Center for the Arts offer and, and when did you start it? Um, officially it was started in uh, 2014 as a not-for-profit and it was only because I was doing a lot of things and I had been doing things for years Uh, I I think I've been at least 25 years in this community doing things for the arts and with children and with anyone else that asked me to do something (laughs) so at a certain point having the not-for-profit kind of expanded my capacity and things that uh, I could do but as far as um what we do, 
we offer art classes, of course, when we get the grants that we uh, we need, we go into like the King Center. I used to do a lot with United Neighbors when it was still there. Um, we have the Urban Exposure Film Program. We also are the home to, and we do a lot of art therapy projects with the African-American uh, Breast Cancer Support Group, which is called Wrapping Ourselves in God's Love. And that was one of the, the things that I helped to form. And we have what we call a film and a conversation that brings in different types of uh, mostly educational content that people, uh, especially in the Black community, don't have access to different documentaries. And so we're doing things like that. Anything else where we can kind of fill in the the blanks for Mm -hmm. art. Jonathan, you spearhead Azubuki's premier program, which is the Urban Exposure Independent Film Project, which runs in the summer. What what opportunities does this program offer young members of our community? Well, I mean, it offers um, first thing. It offers a um, a foundation in in uh, film education, a strong foundation, I think. And um, what we offer is a ten week program, and we meet three times a week, three times a week, and we normally have like three. Um, three, three and a half hour classes, um, sometimes four, sometimes less, just depending on, on what we're teaching. Um, and, uh, within the first five weeks, we teach them the basics of overall film production and filmmaking, screenwriting, cinematography, and then editing. Um, after the five weeks of lecturing, we shift into the second phase, which is the, um, our, I like to call our production company phase where we turn into a small production company and we go into um, pre-production, po- uh, pre-production, production, post-production, and then the final leg is exhibition where we screen um, the films that the students make uh, at the uh, Figgy Art Museum in the John Deere Auditorium. And the films that we make are made by the students under our supervision. Uh, we don't write anything for them we guide them along the process. And these are stories that they tell, um, unfiltered, you know, a bit, a bit raw, but like they are beginning filmmakers. And I think what we've seen, um, in, in recent times is, is it's working. It's working. They're being recognized. We have three films that have gone into film festivals. Two of the films uh, that were in the film festivals were in international film festivals in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And the two films that went to Halifax, Nova Scotia uh, won awards. And then we have about three to four students that are in film school. And when we tell them, when, when when I ask them like, hey, how is it? How's the, you know, how's the first semester of film school? How's the second semester of film school? They're saying, you know, you taught us a lot of, of this already. So we're ahead of the game. And that's the whole point is to put them, give them that advantage to put them ahead of the game um, with mm-hmm. urban exposure. And also to, of course, let them tell their own stories without, without bias, without um, not, to, and not to be stereotyped. Tell the stories how they want to tell. Jonathan, because you're in film, I just want to kind of quickly um, mention that and kind of circle back um, just to talk about the larger problems in the film industry. 
Uh, back, you know, back in 2016, there was this hashtag Oscars so white that became a trending topic on social <laughs> media after all of the nominees, like every single one for the major acting awards were white. And, you know, improvements have been made since then in terms of the actors, but the percentage of non-white directors and writers remains very low. And I'm sure the number of film executives as well. And that that's something that really needs to change because because they're the ones who decide which stories are being told and the ones that we're seeing as a, as a society, as a larger culture. Yeah. I mean, as far as the film industry goes, um, yes, I will say that there have been leaps and bounds made um, as far as the representation and the inclusion of, of um, not only the black community, but of course the, um, you know, all communities as a whole. And, but I feel like, you know, sticking with the black community, um, I feel like, yes, there has been inclusions made, but still there are, there are battles that even the most powerful black people in film have to fight like Ava DuVernay. Um, Ava DuVernay's um, series, When They See Us, um, was riveting. It was about the, it was the story about the Central Park Five and I believe um, at the Golden Globes didn't win a single, I don't think it won a single award. And, and it's, and the thing is, is like when people vote for content, um, at least this is what I know about the Oscars. When they vote, you, they are, uh, you are voting, like your peers are voting for each category. And if there is a, like, you know, as far as race, if there is a lopsidedness or, or kind of like, you know, uh, like if there are more white peers than there are black peers, than there are, than there are Latino peers, then of course, you know, the familiarity of the films that have mostly white cast are probably going to have the easier chances of winning those awards. Um, and I think also... Uh, we had a discussion just with some, uh, I had a discussion with some friends uh, that are working in different studios and, you know, now it's the time to, to look for content, for black content, black content, as if it's the, you know, once again, it's the thing to do. And it kind of makes it feel like, um, it's kind of a rebirth of, um, of the black exploitation movement, um, where there was a 10 year cycle where they would make black films for the cheap but then they would receive, uh, you know, twice that in, in or twice, three times, four times that in revenue uh, through the black viewership or the black dollar, or just, you know, people that were interested in seeing, you know, um, people like Dolomite on, on the screen or, or, or like a uh, shaft or, or Superfly. And, um, and you know what those, and then what people don't understand is that those dollars go to the companies so they can cushion of like fit the normal films that they do. And, and I think it's, it's a thing where like, if you, you, if you do care about the movement and if you do care about making the change, then the budgets that you give black films have to represent that the opportunities that you give black creators have to represent that um, the positions that are filled have to represent the change that you want to make. Yeah, there are a lot of tasks facing us. It's it's daunting. It's hard to know where to start that 
hard work, but certainly like you're saying, getting fair representation, being uh, represented in an equal way on the board of directors and governing bodies and, and having a voice and having that backed up by data is certainly a place to start. Mm-hmm. Well, Gay Shannon Burnett and Jonathan Burnett, thank you so much for talking today. I'm, I'm grateful to both of you for lending your voices to this conversation. And I have one thing to say in closing, and you made the comment that, um, that, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, that white America is waking up from a slumber. But to really be honest, black America is waking up from a very long nightmare. Yeah. So we always are seeing this from totally different perspectives. Yeah. And I, I hope that conversations like this can help that to change. We haven't been asleep. We've been living a nightmare. Yeah. And I'm so sorry for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. WVIK.